Hello and welcome to the Organic Gardening Podcast. I'm Sarah Brown and I'm joined by Chris Collins. We both work here at Garden Organic. Each month we like to bring you some gardening tips, whether like me you have a garden or like Chris you live in a city and grow on a balcony or an allotment. And we're always joined by an interesting guest whose life is shaped by gardening and particularly organic growing. Our podcast is sponsored by the Organic Gardening Catalogue. Chris and I love this online shop. You can find nearly everything you might need to support your organic growing. And if you're a member of Garden Organic, you get 10% off everything. So just go to www.organiccatalogue.com. Now, what have we got for you this month? Well, it's New Year. So Chris and I talk about new ideas in our plots, including perennial veg and mixed planting. The weather isn't great, so our post bag includes queries about how to clear and clean the greenhouse, what to do with those black plastic pots, and whether old seeds can still germinate. I don't know about you, but I've got envelopes of them. It's also January, or Veganuary, so Chris spent time with gardener and journalist Matthew Appleby, who's written the book the super organic gardener, everything you need to know about vegan gardening. What more can I say? So wherever you're listening, on the run, in the car or down in the potting shed, I hope you enjoy listening and feel inspired to get growing the organic way. Chris, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, Sarah. Did you have a good Christmas? I did indeed. I, I was so relaxing. You know what I like about Christmas is everybody else is on holiday, so I actually get a proper break. Some people come out at Christmas going, oh, it's over, I've got to go back. I come out and I think, come on the year. You yeah. know, I kind of get that out of yeah. it, and it's a good thing. Right? I love that quiet space between Christmas and New yes. Year. Yes. Well, that's, uh, we're set up for the not 2020 then, aren't we, Sarah? Okay, talking of which, have you got any new things? Because, you know, New Year, people have new ideas of what they want to do in the year. What have you got for well, I think it's been an interesting year for me on the allotment because I am an incredibly busy guy and I travel a lot and I'm away a lot and a few times this uh, 19, 2019 it got away from me I felt you know I, I kind of I was sort of crisis managing it I'd turn up every two weeks and, that, and it would all be overgrown I'd have to get onto it and, and I want to kind of avoid that this year I want to be more it needs a bit more of a plan I felt so I am going to be looking I'll grow all my usual stuff but I'm going to be looking at more perennial edibles on the allotment oh interesting yeah some more permanent planting for busy people a lot for busy people, I like to but call But I it. think it's what is interesting is quite a few things can be grown perennially. Brassicas, for instance. Yes. You can grow a perennial kale, can't you? You can grow artichoke. Yeah. Is another one horseradish, which is a brilliant one. I eat, I eat a lot of that, so yeah, I'm you fine. Want to watch out, that's going to spread. Well, it is quite well. I've got a, a, um, I've got a boggy bit at the end of the allotment, which I'm going to put a pond in. So I want some wildlife in. I think I'll just whack it at the back next to the fence. But it's you know it's a perennial and it's I we eat a lot of it. Obviously, I live, you know we eat a lot of Asian food, so it's that would be quite important. Chicory is a big favourite of mine. Ooh. Don't you like oh chicory with blue cheese and a little bit of olive oil? Absolutely love that as a star. So you know there's those kind of perpetual spinach you can get that going. But they're the kind of normal ones. They're the kinds. But there are some unusual stuff out there. I love the Egyptian walking onion. Do you know Ooh, this plant? Yeah. <laughs> I love this. What just the title. Show? Just the title. And it's an alien. And what it does is the bulb forms on the end of the leaves. And then the, the, the leaves get heavy and the, and the leaves fall over and then the bulb regenerates from that from that collapse. But apparently they're quite nice to eat as well. Perfect. Yeah, so I'll have it. I mean, it might not work out. It might not work, uh, work out. But it's worth a little go. Shuttlecock fir, apparently. If you take the, 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 the coils, the new growth, 
and you saute them with butter. They're supposed to be quite nice as well. Oh, okay. So, so this con- is all time-saving in a sense. It is, yeah. And presumably not the whole of your lot. No, I'll run. I'll run a strip down the side. Solomon Seals, another one. Apparently the leaves are quite nice. So it's actually going to be. They're going to play two roles. They're going to be ornamental. Mm. A bit like a artichoke, really. Such a beautiful plant. Ornamental, but also edible. Mm. And I just think that'll take the pressure off me because of the size of the allotment, but mm. still do what it's intended to do. Mm. It's interesting you say that because my plan, I grow within raised beds. I've got six different raised beds. And I find the raised bed mentality tends to make you quite formal mm. and quite restrained. Just the shape of them, really, is kind I of... I love yeah, them. Yeah. I love them because it is contained and you can just weed one and you have a great sense of achievement. But I now want to encourage myself to get a little bit more unruly right. within the race. Let it go a little bit. Yeah, 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 yeah. Let things hang over the edge yeah. a bit. But more importantly, to mix my planting. So I've got flowers in with my veg. Yeah. So you've got these beautiful orange marigolds self-seeding, for yes, instance. Yes, yeah. And they set off the purple brassicas or whatever. So I'm just going to let Be a bit freer, but that's what I mean. And that's a big part of organic gardening, isn't it? Letting things mix together. Let them... I was at Gertrude Jekyll once said, so they're all welcome in my garden, she yes. once said. And I think that... But also, it's very cheap to do because you can get your little your packets, your hardy annuals, yeah. sow them straight into the soil around the edge. You're away, aren't you? Yeah. What else are you going to be doing this month? It's January... Goodness knows what the weather's going to bring. Well, I think, I mean, I've got a space. This is one thing I, I, I'm not, a, it's unusual for me to procrastinate, but I have been procrastinating on this one area of the allotment down the bottom. And um, I want it for soft fruit. That's purely what I want it for. I spend a small fortune on soft fruit. It's very hard to get it organic for a start. You know, yes, is that that's difficult? true. And it is the worst. They must spray it to pieces. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What if you're going to buy it? Wash it really thoroughly if you're getting it, you know. And um, so I want to do that. But I really want to go for the heritage varieties. And I will confess, and this is the beauty of gardening. It's one area that I know very little about. You know, gardening's a never-ending journey, isn't it? Yeah. And so I really, there's two reasons I want to do it. One, I want soft fruit to eat, but I also want to go into an area that I'm that I will learn from. So I would say, actually, if any uh, listeners out there, or uh, I've got knowledge of maybe London soft fruit, heritage soft fruit, or South East soft fruit, please do get in touch with me. I could do with a little bit of help, and us gardeners love to share information. You never know. There might be a bow black currant. You never know. Yeah, exactly. This is the kind of journey Chelsea I want. Chelsea raspberry. Exactly. This is the journey I want to go on. Oh, fantastic. I think that I'm going to spend a bit of time planning. That's my key thing this year, and certainly this month. I want to think about where everything's going. As I mentioned, I've got the six raised beds, and I tend to alternate between them where I grow my different crops. And I think that's an important point to make. One, it stops any soil residues of pests and diseases building up in one area. So if you've got tomato blight or like I had the terrible yes. leaf, sorry, allium leaf minor in my leeks last year, I want to change that, make sure that I'm planting things in different spaces. So you're going to rotate, are you? Then? So you move it's, it's known as crop rotation. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah, so yeah. I'll be moving round the beds with my different And that bases. stops build up soil-borne pest and disease, etc. It does that, yeah. but it also makes maximum use of the soil nutrition. Yeah. So some plants are much hungrier than others. Yes. So instead of having to put compost down on every single one of the beds... I can put, for instance, brassicas, which are hungry plants. I will compost that bed. But then there are those that don't need quite so much of that rich oomph of the soil, like the legumes, the peas and the beans. As you say, they carry their own lunchbox. (laughs) I don't have to put my precious compost necessarily on that soil right at the beginning. So there's a quite a clever use yes. of nutrition within the soil. And so would you would you sit down and draw that? I would mind my Yeah, so you sit down with a bit of pen and paper, look at the varieties you're gonna choose and then make a plan for the year. Absolutely, because it's all too easy to make that decision 
do it in January, and by March you think, where would the yes, I think I would. I'm, I'm a, you know when I, the year gets away yeah, from you. Listen, I can't forget. do anything about making a list of a day now. <laughs> yeah, you, 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 but I actually yeah. also have a book which tells me what I planted yeah. last I, year. I think that um, a plan. Gardeners are always good planners, and, to, and we are, we're very good at seeing what's kind of coming in the future. We are, we always look ahead, and that's a very good example of it. Now, Chris, I know you love feeding the birds on your oh, mate, My life would not be the same without those two bird feeders on my windows. I really, I have so much pleasure from them. Well, this month is the Great British Bird Watch. I think it's at, towards the end of the month where people are encouraged to spend 10 minutes watching the birds, recording them, sending it off online. But I just want to flag up, there is now a best practice for feeding birds from the British Trust for Ornithology. What they've discovered is that, unfortunately, by putting food out to birds, there has been some bad instances of spread of diseases. Right. So a particularly bad one in the past 10 years or so has been a disease called trichomonosis. It's easy for you to say. Well, I hope I got <laughs> that right. But that has decimated the greenfinch and chaffinch population. Wow. And they think that that's probably come from infected bird feeders because the bacteria is transferred by saliva. The, what the BTO recommend is, first of all, you feed in moderation. Don't put out a humongous amount of food. Right. Put out just enough, probably for one or two days at the most. So if, if the food moldy, sits, if yeah, yeah, if it sits, then you're more likely to get exactly. disease. Yeah. Then definitely wash and disinfect bird feeders. Now they recommend they not necessarily once a day, once a week would be brilliant. Certainly once a month. Right. So it's interesting because I wash my bird feeders. I've got two of those stick-on ones on the windows. I wash them every day. What you're doing is you're getting rid of the, all that bacteria, yeah. which might come from birds which are carrying the disease. And then finally, remove the old wet food and droppings. You've seen them feed. They drop seeds, don't they, all over the place. Yes. And then other birds will swoop down and pick those seeds yep, up. Yeah, usually now pigeons. Those, <laughs> yep. But those are the seeds that are going to be carrying the bacteria from the saliva of the bird that dropped right, it. Right, I see. So do a rigorous clean if you can. So underneath the bird food, obviously this is, a, this is quite a big thing and for me. Because it drops onto the onto the onto the floor of my balcony. Yes. So you're saying I scrap the dustpan and brush and clean that Absolutely. up. When I'm filling the bird um, feeder, I should be doing that as well. Absolutely, and the bird poo as well. I have to tell you a story, Sarah, about birds. I get goldfinches on my my bird feeders, and I got up there the morning very early, and I was half asleep, and I went into the bedroom. First job I do is the birds. I feed the fish and I feed the birds before, well, before I even, you feed before, before I even put a coffee on. Yeah, and uh, there were three goldfinches sat on the bird feed. There was no food in the bird feed. They're looking at me like that, going, "Come on, mate, where's where's the grub? Sort it out. <laughs> Get your act together." And it's such an interesting thing because it was just such a magical moment and it's such a simple thing. And it just set me up in such a good mood for the rest of the day. And that that's a nice, that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. I agree. I go down first thing and I let the hens out before I've had my breakfast. And did you know hens sing? Really, they sing yeah, to yeah. Each other inside the house, you can hear them. Whether it's it's a little bit of Frank Sinatra crooning, wow. sometimes a little choral work. My three. Hens. So they wake up in a good mood then. Oh yeah, <laughs> and as you say, it puts you in. A yes, good it mood. does. It really does affect you know. It really does. Life's just not so complicated, you know. You look around, you enjoy a bit of nature, enjoy a bit of gardening, grab a bit of your own food. You know, live life to the full. it when Chris gets gently philosophical. Anyway, January has become known to some as Veganuary, when vegans and vegetarians urge that we not only eat less meat, but no meat. Vegans go one step further. They believe that no animals should be exploited for human purposes, so no eggs, milk, cheese, or even honey and leather. 
Whatever your thoughts on the matter, we thought it would be interesting to make a vegan gardener. So Chris talked to grower and journalist Matthew Appleby. And I spoke with my colleague Dr Anton Rosenfeld, who works at Garden Organic and is also a vegan. He gave me some practical tips on his vegan approach to gardening. But first, here's Chris and Matt. They seem to be in a warm cupboard somewhere, so I hope you can catch every word above the hum. Well, I'm here with Matthew Appleby. I go a long way back with, don't I, Matthew? You do? Yes. Yeah, we yeah. go back a long time in this uh, game. Uh, but you're very passionate nowadays about veganism, aren't you, and vegan gardening. Do you want to tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. I brought a book out about it this year called Super Organic Gardener, um, you know, how to make your vegan garden. Because a few years ago, I thought there's a real gap in the market here for going beyond organics into something which is like super green and think looking at environment, human health, but also looking about, and I'm also going beyond wildlife gardening. But then veganism absolutely took off and then suddenly publishers were really interested. And this year it's been absolutely phenomenal. I've been doing talks and TV and radio and like, it's just hit the moment. I was on like this morning, you know, on ITV and stuff like that. And uh, so it's really the wind's behind it in a lot of ways, isn't it? I mean, I've hit the moment. And, I, <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm lucky, really, because if it had come out a couple of years ago when I wanted to, it would have not been on, on shows. Sure. But my idea was to kind of popularise this, because there has been books about this in the past, but very, very niche. Do you, do you, do you encounter a lot of cynicism about this? Because it is, at the moment, it is quite trendy. And it is, I would argue, seen as quite maybe quite a middle-class thing, a quite, yeah. you know, how the image it's kind of got, which maybe is not the right one, but do you, do you encounter cynicism on, on it? Um, and there's poorly kind of negative reactions in some places, like, you know, that ITV thing. Mm. But at least I got that out there to an audience which didn't know about it before. Yeah. You know, it's easy for me to write a page in The Guardian. Yeah. I mean, even in The Guardian, people are quite negative because they basically say, I do this already and I do it better than you. <laughs> in, in the wider world, people are like, you know, this is ridiculous, you're, you're an idiot. But like, I've got the idea out there. And when you get the thing about climate change and world food shortages and loads of other stuff like that, you know, it's, I think people are thinking of new ideas and being a bit more receptive at the moment. I also wanted to get some products into the market because, you know, you get organic products, but not many in gardening, but you get vegan products in supermarkets. So I thought, why not have a vegan aisle in the, in the garden centre? So that's represented, so then actually you can then go in and have vegan products where you'd go to buy plants or stuff for your outdoor spaces. Well, exactly. I mean, there's a bit of vegan bit on the, ca- on the cafe menu in garden centres and in every other cafe in the country. So why not have the, the products? And it is particularly relevant for gardening. I mean, obviously in food, you know, there's vegan recipe books out all over the place, but not really any vegan gardening books. You know, a lot of garden is about growing food, and it's the only way you really know the provenance of your food is if you grow it yourself and you know exactly what the inputs are. And the inputs are using your own compost or bought compost which is vegan and not manures from animals, and using your own homemade fertiliser, which, you know, a garden organic thing like the comfrey based or whatever base, but not using blood, fish and bone fertiliser. Right. But another big thing is like growing for health. So, you know, the publisher was keen for me to talk about recipes. And I was like, oh God, I, don't, I can't cook. <laughs> so I thought I'd approach it by saying, you know, like vegans need to think about protein and iron and stuff they might not be so um, sufficient in compared to meat eaters. So I looked at the crops and their recommended daily allowances of like the vitamins and minerals that were in them. So like beans, for instance, has got loads of protein in. I said, this is how to grow beans. This is the RDAs. 
and needs a recipe as well. <laughs> <laughs> so you take the recipe on the end. But don't you yeah, think yeah. that, don't you think, so I have an allotment, I grow a lot of food and it encourages me to cook yeah. where I normally wouldn't cook. So if I've got a glut of produce, yeah. I'm more likely to get the saucepans out and cook it than if I wasn't doing it. So it's a kind of a knock-on. But you interest, you eat a couple of things quite interesting because it's not just about food, is it? Veganism is not just about food. So you, this could come into what you're wearing maybe or... Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, the idea of veganism is like livestock farming takes up a huge amount of land and a huge amount of water and resources but if you just grow crops on that land, it's a lot less of the land use used up. So you can basically feed the population a lot, right. a lot easier. So you're not mass, you're not mass producing food. You're more, you're sticking to smaller crops yeah. and uh, yeah, and, and local production as well. But the, the other, the main bit is, and the main reason why I think most people go vegan is not, it's not just about human health or environment. It's about like animals. Like, I really care yeah. about animals. Yeah. So that's about not killing anything yeah. on the plot. So people say to me like. What do I do about a slug? So I say hug a slug. What kind of reaction do you get to hugging a slug? Campaign? Well, I don't know. I think, you know, kids go, Ugh, but only because they're taught to go, Ugh. Yeah. You know, you know, with foxes or whatever on your plot. Like, I was doing a talk last weekend and someone was like, what do you do about foxes on, a, on, on your plot? And I was like, well, I don't do anything because they don't do any damage. Yeah. But they kind of assume so it's, they it's, do. It's, yeah, it's a preemptive, isn't yeah. it? It's like, that's bad, you know, and, and so we get rid of it. It's funny about the thugs and snails because I would have years ago put them in a bucket of salty water and been brutal with them. Yeah. Now I tend to put them in a placky bag and walk them off site. And yeah. I think, so you know, we are talking about a, a respect for life, aren't we? Well, yeah, exactly. And, you know, at the end of the day, I, I, I came up with this thing which, uh, which gardeners, you know, I, I think is a bit difficult for them. I said, you know, the animal's going to eat your plant. Let it eat your plant rather than killing it and, and having a good, nice plant. And, they, and, and gardeners are like, you can't do that. <laughs> but in terms of food, that you can't really do that if you're going to be a commercial producer. But there are commercial producers who have got such a, a nice, organic, you know, yeah. biodiverse plot that there's, an, there's enough predators in there which will, will kill the bad stuff you know so if you've got the size you can probably do it properly but i suppose you've hit it on the head there haven't you it's about diversity on the plot so if you grow 50 lettuces in a rows and rows and rows and you're going to attract probably a lot more slug aren't you so it's maybe about mixing things up a bit yeah i mean it's you know you're not going to be self-sufficient doing this but you you're going to feel a lot better about yeah yourself. yeah and the taste is much better as well i think the wind's behind it a little bit i think there is the um in a little way, that's how horticulture itself is changing. Now we're now we're now trying to decide to imbibe these things, aren't we? If you wanted to start to do this kind of thing, grow vegan food and eat vegan food, and you and where would where would you start? Is there kind of a, a square one you'd, you'd start from? Well, yeah, I mean the, the the basics, which are all in the book, are, are about same as anything else, preparing your soil. But the, you you need a crop rotation is pretty important. Yeah. So you're probably on a smaller plot of a five year crop rotation, basically crop groups. Um, in order to not take too many minerals out of the soil, you also plant a load of cover crops. Do you be like the green manures? Yeah, exactly. Stuff. Yeah, yeah. To try and put something back in because it's all about building up your soil. Yeah. Same as any organic. I was going to say, it's, a lot of the organic principles are in there, aren't they? It, it, I mean, it, is, it is exactly the same, and it's no, it's no dig, which is yeah. you know, pretty popular at the moment. Just going back to what you said before, I mean, I have seen people kind of cashing in a bit, like sort of saying that they are kind of a bit sort of veg based. And you're like, you know, <laughs> are you sort of vegan? And they're like, oh no, we're just veg based. But we can it's a bit like the vegetarian says, I eat, I eat fish once a week. You're yeah, that's what I like. They can see an audience there. But I mean, uh, I don't care about that because, you know, there's loads of people who are like flexitarian there. Uh, you know, and you never meet anybody who says, I, I don't eat less meat. 
Yeah. Like everyone says that, don't they? Yeah. Or you know, so I mean, I think it's all all good. You know. You so if so, you think if somebody said, uh, you know, what I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna eat vegan three times a week, that's progress, isn't it? Yeah. That yeah. takes pressure off the environment, the planet, etc. And yeah, I mean, I'm not. You know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm a bit uncomfortable in kind of trying to get anybody to do anything. <laughs> don't you think as British people, like, if you try and tell us what to do too much, we tend to react negatively to that anyway, don't we? So, so maybe it's a, it's a softly, softly sort of approach in lots of ways anyway. Well, yeah, and I just sort of put the idea out there and said, this is how you do it. And in real life, I just want to try and lighten it up a bit, which I think is something vegans desperately need to do. Yeah, not, not, don't be so intense about it. But mm-hmm. I mean, you've got a bit of that in the fact that I, I sort of see you on Twitter now, and you've gone with your boys, and you've got a couple of boys, is it? Yeah, Am I right? right yeah. So you're down there a lot with them, so they're kind of joining in that. Is that important to you? Yeah, I think it is, it is important. You know, I, I, I get them down there and, you know, they, they um, can be helpful. Usually, usually, <laughs> usually they just fight with canes or whatever. Or well, they're like fires, so I shouldn't really do fires. They're not very good for the environment. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a sort of family thing, you know. Yeah. Well, I think that also, in a little way, obviously, you know, I work with kids a lot. I think that in a way they are many, much more adapted to the whole principle of maybe we need to take care of things a bit more than we have so far as a... As a species, don't you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, my, one of my kids is in the school gardening club and he knows all about it and he knows why he's doing it. And, you know, they always talk about the skip generation, don't they? Where yeah. The kids tell the parents because yeah. they get taught it. So where do you sort of see horticulture going? Because it's quite interesting from where I started when it was kind of very neat and very organised and it's kind of loosened up. And Do you see it? Cha- is it the changes in it? Yeah, I mean, there's so much, you know, if you look at sort of Chelsea, there was a lot of wild gardens last year, you know, which would never have been there before. What about, what about garden centres in these places that have had to really kind of spread out, haven't they, in terms of what they sell in order to survive? Or do you think there's a, is there an obligation to them to be more environmental, for them to be thinking about this stuff? There's been a huge pressure this year, you know, and I've done absolutely loads of investigation about plastics and, you know, the gardening industry has tried to do something about that. I think Pete's going to be massively on the agenda next year. Pesticides are big on the agenda as ever, and um, plant health is the four P's. Yeah. You know, and the industry in some ways has been slow to pick up on them. They have got answers. So I suppose you've got to, again, it's got to be it's something we just slowly put pressure on. But we could, in a way, as an industry, be leading the way, couldn't we, in terms of what goes on in the rest of society? We could be blazing a trail, couldn't we, with environmental I mean, issues? I throw these ideas out there, and I'm big on labelling. I want to see sort of plant and product labelling saying, you know, what is actually in those plants and products, which it doesn't do at the moment, you know, in a bag of pea or in a, in a plant in a pot. And I'm also big on sort of recycling, so I want to see garden centres take back plastic pots, which they used to do years ago, but they don't anymore. But just as, even yeah. if it costs them money, it's just a good nature of yeah, good, yeah. goodwill. And there's loads of little things that you could do that like that to be friendly. Because it's easy to say, I'm in horticulture, I'm green, I do think great things for the environment. But it's not all about the environment. You know, it's a business and people forget that. And Greens, like, say, basically, gardening is not a business. Well, the garden industry is a business yeah. and it's always going to be. But I would, I think, I think you agree with this. We do seem to be moving in the right direction, don't we? Yeah. Uh, gardening has an opportunity to maybe be a bit more progressive about it all. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I mean, one big thing I've noticed is, you know, going back to the vegan thing, a lot of people were conventional eaters, conventional gardeners, and they thought about, like, maybe going vegetarian or maybe going organic. And, and a lot of people have left that middle ground and gone straight into something which 
used to be regarded as quite extreme, like being vegan. I don't know, maybe it's Brexit, like just people have become more extreme, like they've, they've kind of diversified. Polarised a little bit, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I think it's brilliant, mate, what you're doing. I, I love the thing, thing. I really do enjoy following the social media on it all. And, uh, yeah. Thanks, Matthew, I really appreciate your time, mate. has chosen a vegan lifestyle himself and has been a vegan for many years. Isn't that right, Anton? That's right. I've been a vegan for since I was the age of 21. Which Oh, just a few years ago then? Yeah, just a few years ago, but about 1990, yeah, just that sort of time. And, is that about the time the Berlin Wall was coming coming down? <laughs> that sort of time, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, it really, it wasn't a trendy thing when I... When I became a vegan, I was in, really in a minority. I'm a little bit older than you because I remember when I became vegetarian and the only place to eat was at Cranks. And it was called Cranks for a reason, because we were considered Cranks. Yeah, it was very, very healthy food, I seem to remember. <laughs> yeah, yes, wholesome. <laughs> um, so Anton, it's good to talk to you because having heard... Matt talk about his book and about how important the vegan lifestyle was to him and how he wanted to introduce it into gardening. Of course, it's really vegan gardening to me sounds very similar to organic gardening. But I wonder, how would you say they differ? I would say the major difference is that you make a big effort not to involve any animal products in your gardening, just in as with the rest of your lifestyle really you're not wearing leather you're not eating animal products so you bring that into your gardening as well most of it's pretty organic really a lot of the principles really lie very well with organic gardening things like looking after the soil first and foremost yes i mean there's a whole whole list of things there's looking after your soil there's pest control is more about sort of preventative measures rather than reactive measures yeah it all sits very well with organic gardening um, we're very big on green manures. I think they're a very important part of um, vegan organic gardening and organic gardening. They're one of the few things which actually fix nitrogen and add nutrients to the soil. OK, I'm going to stop you there because there may be some people listening who haven't known about green manures or the, uh, the term is new to them. Can you explain a little bit more? OK, so green manures, it's a, very, it's a bit of a misleading term because it's got the word manure in it and it's not actually a manure. It's a plant which is basically grown to improve the soil. So vetch is one of my favourites. Um, it's vigorous growing, it smothers weeds very quickly. Um, it also fixes nitrogen, it has bacteria and little nodules in the roots. Um, there's a plentiful supply of nitrogen in the air, but um, it's a gas which the plants can't get at. But what these little bacteria do is fix it into a form that the plants can t take up. So that, that's really important. And of course nitrogen is key, isn't it, to the plant's health and putting on leafy growth. Clover is another one. Similar action? I personally find a lot of clovers can be more difficult to establish just as a gardener. I, I, if you get everything right, clover grows really well, whereas I find, find vetch is more bulletproof, really. Oh, so that's, that, that's just my, my experience. So that's interesting. So the vegan way is to grow the manure rather than get the manure from the farmyard that's been created by animals. Exactly. I mean, all your inputs are going to be plant-based. So 
Comfrey is another oh. really good one. It's it's a plant that you can use to make your own plant feeds, and again, it will really do well to sort of add nutrients. And of course, there's there's your own supply of compost as well. That's really important. And I also quite liked in his book. He talks about how vegan growing is not a list of things not to do. I not using animal products but it's more about the positive side of, of, of gardening just like organic is in terms of encouraging wildlife encouraging biodiversity so that then you naturally don't want to use poisons and I like that attitude certainly I mean I think it sits with the vegan diet as well that it's about all the sort of nice foods and dishes that you can eat not what you what you can't eat Okay, Anton, one other thing that I think is interesting to discuss, is there a difference in the impact on the environment if you're a vegan gardener? There can be. One of the main things is that we don't use manure, which is transported from somewhere else. This is um, manure created by animals. Yes. What people don't realise is actually there's quite a lot of embedded energy or a large carbon footprint to using that manure. For a starting point, it's been transported. From the farm to your growing area. Exactly. And also, often we're not sure what sort of system it's come from. I mean, it might be an organic system, but more often or not it isn't and then could have been fed all sorts of feed from places where we just don't know where they've come from it's it's suddenly the sort of footprint really widens it ah because you're talking about cows or pigs that have been reared on great that are grain fed and that well of be a soya product or a bean product so again it's an, again there's an embedded footprint in that exactly i mean that grain probably isn't organic and then it's been fed lots of fertilizer so it's mm-hmm. we're actually using a lot of artificial fertilizer but we can't see it that's very true and of course if you have a pasture fed animal probably done in a relatively small scale and a closed system so the manure from that animal will probably be kept by the farmer on his own farm to increase his fertilization. Yes, I mean that's a good point as well as a lot of farmers are seeing manure as a valuable product now rather than a byproduct to give away. It's really interesting that thought and I think it's this following through isn't it on on each product or each aspect of gardening or growing as to where it comes from, where it's sourced and the implications of all of that. I think that's right just because we can't see the process and how it's made we often just put it out of our minds so, i mean i know when, when i've worked as a grower sort of some of the sort of plant feeds which are organic and allowed under organic systems come from quite unsavory sources are you we know. talking blood fish yeah and bone? sort of the right pulp of mixture of blood fish and bone and i you know i, I wouldn't want to be eating that so why would i want to be putting it on my plants things i know some compost and particularly fertile fiber has labeled some of their composts as as vegan so that that's progress thank you anton that's been very helpful and for you it's the way forward obviously i think if you're you've embraced a vegan lifestyle then why not take it out into the garden as well it just becomes part of your general ethos Because we're joined by Hannah with the Garden Organic Post Bag. Hello, Hannah. Yes, hello. So we've got a, a lovely theme this month. Um, so it's January and people are looking to have a bit of a clear out. So the first question is about seeds. Um, this member has a box with lots of half-used packets of seeds. Some are past their use-by date. What would your advice be? What should they do with them? Anton. Well, I think the first thing is don't throw them all away because some of them will still be useful. 
It does really depend on how they were stored. A lot of people tend to store their seed packets in the garden shed. It seems like a convenient place because that's where, closest to where you're going to be using them. But unfortunately, garden sheds aren't actually a great place for storing your seeds. They tend to sort of fluctuate a lot in temperature, so they get absolutely baking hot in the summer and then they get very cold in, in the winter and they can be quite damp as well. Um, I'd say a spare bedroom is a good place for storing, storing seed or, or if you've got the space, store them in the fridge, but obviously that's not necessarily going to be popular with everybody. Certain varieties keep much longer than others. There's a little bit of disagreement but there is some common consensus. I would say parsnips, you really do need to have fresh parsnip seed each year. Even last year's parsnip seed, I'd say, is a waste of time. It really doesn't tend, tend to work. And other things in the carrot family don't tend to last that long. They don't tend to last more than a couple of years. But most of the other things, things like tomatoes and brassicas, you can certainly be keeping them. They'll still be viable within five years or so. So... Oh, that's interesting, yeah. Anton, because so often on seed packets you see mm. a date stamped, which is really usually just the next year. And I guess the seed proprietors, manufacturers are just covering themselves, are they? They are, yes. They, they just Obviously, they want you to go back and buy more seeds as well. <laughs> that's probably one of their motivations. Cynical. <laughs> it's interesting you say about storing them. I keep mine foolishly in my greenhouse, or I used to, until a mouse got in and ate them all packets and seeds so I've learned my lesson on that one to keep perhaps keep them in something that a mouse can't get into whether it's a tin or a, a thick plastic and Tupperware container. One of the most important things is actually keeping them dry that's actually more important yes. than keeping them cool sort of cool damp conditions are actually worse than warm dry conditions it's that moisture that really is well it's basically what a plant seed need to germinate so if you're supplying it with that it's not going to going to be kept in its dormant state so if you've kept them kept your seed in a less than ideal situation is there any way to test whether it's worth sowing them again yeah you can actually test them very easily you can do a simple germination test on them that sounds very scientific but actually it can be done with very little equipment i find the ideal thing is perhaps a sandwich box or a takeaway box um, with some soaked tissue in there. It needs to be just lightly damp, not absolutely soaking wet. And then if you put about 20 seeds on there and make sure they're kept damp, put the lid on the box, then you just need to remember to count them every day and basically see how quickly they germinate. And if after three or four weeks they haven't germinated, chances are they never will. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it does depend, again, slightly on the, on the seeds. Some things germinate a lot more quickly than others, but things like brassicas you really ought to see them germinating with a couple of days tomatoes and spinach might take a bit longer i suppose you can take your lead by the length of time on the seed packets process. yes again they give you guidance on that don't mm. they but sometimes you have seeds i certainly have got seeds that i've saved and they're in uh, envelopes i haven't i've written the name of the variety on it but i haven't necessarily given all the details of germination times or whatever and it's those envelopes that you find that are a year, two, three or four years old. Mm -hmm. Those are the ones that you're more wary of whether they're going to germinate or not. Yeah. And probably a very stupid question, but if you do the germination test, you see that the seeds are beginning to shoot. Can you then sow them to grow them? That very much depends on the type of seed. 
I, I actually do that for a lot of the sort of larger things like squash plants that does actually work pretty well for I think some of the smaller things sort of brassicas and tomatoes you might really struggle with okay so overall keep them dry try and keep their temperature reasonably stable in a cool place Spare bedroom, fridge. I mean, one way of keeping them really dry is to keep them in a container of dried rice as well. And that information is on the Heritage Seed Library's website of how to store the seeds. So it's worth having a look on that. That's a very good practical tip because to actually go out and buy desiccant material can be expensive and, and time consuming. But actually, as you say, a jar of rice will absorb the moisture protecting the seeds but you do need to dry out the rice first in an oven too true (laughs) so that's all on the garden organic website within the heritage seed library information brilliant okay on to the next one this is close to my heart because i'm in this situation my shed is full of plastic pots and trays i really don't think i need them all what can i do with them so i think actually hannah we're all guilty of this one because we accrue these plastic pots and trays from anything we've bought or been given and they just it's quite scary how they grow I mean I I probably could count up to 50 at least at home I can beat that (laughs) but they came with the house so I'll uh, yeah don't take full responsibility so what do we do with them well I suppose the first thought is can you use them in any way yourself um, for planting things into putting them inside a terracotta pot you can sometimes put a black plastic pot inside and grow your plant. It helps contain the moisture a little bit better than a terracotta pot, which will lose the moisture quite quickly. But in truth, I think most of us look to be able to recycle all these plastic pots. But this is actually a bone of contention between the garden centre retailer and the local council refuse collectors. Um, The garden centres say it's a plastic that can be recycled, However, it's black and the local recycling people say we can't recycle black because it's not picked up by our laser machinery in the recycle line. And also they want it to be pristine clean. Well, not many of us want to spend time washing our flower pots. So there is this difficulty in this tension and it makes it difficult for us, the gardeners. Do you put it outside with your curb collection? Do you take it to a recycling centre? These are all questions which will be dealt with in your own locality. There isn't a national recycling scheme. Um, I have to say I'm inclined towards this wonderful nursery that's down in Kent who have decided they're going to ban plastic where they can from their retail operation. And so if you go to buy compost from them, for instance, you take a bag for life and you fill it yourself from their big compost heap. And when it comes to buying a plant in a plastic pot, they will sell you the plant in a biodegradable pot, which is probably made of cardboard. They take it out of the black pot that it came from their plant supplier in, put it in the cardboard so you can take it home, and they will reuse that black pot for their own purposes, growing in their own greenhouses. Because, of course, many retailers are stuck by what they're sent from their suppliers. And the big plant suppliers are still predominantly using black plastic. So I've noticed that you can now buy plants in different coloured plastic. Does that make a huge difference? Is there anything to look out for there? Well, the main advantage of that is that it can be recycled at the end of its life because the sorting machines can pick them up a lot more easily. Obviously, you have to look out for the fact 
whether they are made out of recycled materials in the first place. There's, there's no point going on to something that can be recycled if you're then just using virgin plastic to make it in the, in the first place. So it's a bit of a double-edged sword there. But I know a lot of the firms that are making these coloured pots, they are made out of recycled material as well. And there are, there are trials for fibre pots, for pots made from a bio-waste plastic. So it's in the pipeline, but nothing's actually happening. Now, the question is, what can I do with all these pots? So we've talked about recycling. And one of the things I use mine for is I create a shelving system in my garden shed over winter to store my apples. And to create this shelving system, I use black plastic pots as bases, then lay a plank across the top, and then another four black plastic tops, and another plank on top of those. But it's interesting. I'd be really keen to say, see all the other things that people have done with them. I, you know, I know our members in particular are very imaginative and very creative with reusing the things they've got. That's, yeah, quite a nice idea. Yes. Let's, well, if you're listening and you've got ideas, then, then email us at Garden Organic. There's an email address, podcast at gardenorganic.org.uk. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see what people are up to. How about trying to pass them on? I suppose that's extending their life, probably one of the best things we can do. I think that's a nice idea. And if you garden on an allotment or if you have a community or part of a community gardening group, then why not have a pot share or have a place that you can put all your pots and people can help themselves if there's a site on the allotment where pots are donated for free. And certainly, I mean, obviously, reuse comes above recycling the waste hierarchy. Absolutely, Anton, you're and, right. And quite a lot of allotments and community groups have a plant sale in Bring, and they're probably on the lookout for pots, so that's quite a good use of them there. Of course, yeah, and the schools, I guess, school gardening. So, yeah, see, see who you can give them to before you then look at the recycling. So if you can stop someone else having to buy a plant pot, then you reduce, reduce the amount. Reuse, recycle, exactly. Okay, so the last one is a bit of a, a bit of a task which I have that sits heavy on my mind that I need to do. Um, someone's asking, what's the best way to clean out my pots and my greenhouse? Well, let's start with the greenhouse. I would say if there's one thing you're going to do, not all of us have got the time to go and disinfect our greenhouse, or perhaps not all of us actually want to do that. But if there's one thing you're going to do is just remove all the debris that you can because that is where all the pests and things are going to be overwintering. So if you can get rid of bits of dying plant material, get rid of old compost, um, any bits of compost spilt on the floor, any bits of sort of moss hanging around as well, they are all sort of refuges, particularly for the scarred fly, which is something that can come and attack your seedlings. And it's also a place for sort of red spider mites to hang out as well. Sarah, you also said that fuchsias is a place for... Well, if you happen to have some fuchsias that are overwintering, in fact, any, or geraniums even that are overwintering, they do attract whitefly at this time of year, or they've already got the whitefly. So one idea for that is to take your fuchsia outside the greenhouse or the polytunnel carefully without dislodging those whiteflies, and then once you're out, shake the plant as much and as vigorously as you can, obviously without damaging it and losing it from the pot, and then put it back in the greenhouse. That way you'll reduce your whitefly population. But yes, I take your point, Anton, that it can look untidy at the end of a growing season, can't it? It's like there wasn't time to deal with it all earlier in the year when everything was growing. Now is your time to tidy it. I think that another good thing, basic thing to do, is to wash down the glass 
or the plastic because it can get quite dark with um, smudges and algae, as you say, and that stops that weak winter sunshine coming in. So, yeah, it may not be the greatest job on the list, but I don't know, get some soapy water or some Citrox you use, don't you? Yes, Citrox, probably wouldn't use it on the glass, but it's certainly a very good way of sterilising material. It's, I mean, this traditional material used by gardeners was always Jay's fluid, and, and that's really quite unpleasant stuff. But um, So Citrox is a much sort of kinder alternative that is particularly used by organic gardeners. To and you can get that from the organic gardening catalogue? Yes, you can. It- um, it can be used for sterilising tools, it can be used to clean brickwork, to clean out pots as well, so it's, that's a good thing to be using. And it breaks down, it's, it's actually made from, from citrus fruits, as the name implies. You could probably make your own, um, in terms of adding some lemon juice to some water. Or, you might or... need a lot of lemons, I think. <laughs> You've just made this job even more arduous, Sarah, that's not what we're doing. I will urge you though, Hannah, if you're going to, if you don't do your greenhouse, if you've got a, a cold frame, or if you've got a stack of, of plant pots, have a look and check that there aren't a whole cluster of snails overwintering there, because that's what I find, that they go to hibernate there, and then come spring, they come jauntily out to eat all your seedlings. Turn them over, and depending on your wishes, you can how you dispose of those snails, um, you can rehome them, rehouse them, or you can leave them out for thrushes to eat. So the purpose of cleaning, uh, it's not a case of making it look nice. Is this... You know, this is an issue of hygiene and pests and disease spread, is that right? It is, yes. And you mentioned trays and and pots as well. I mean, trays, I think, is actually reasonably important to clean them out. Um, Any soil left in there can gradually harbour various fungi in there, which can lead to a condition known as damping off when your seedlings just basically collapse as they sort of germinate. And that's very dispiriting when you... And that really is just hygiene, it's just cleaning the soil out. I mean, a, a good rinse in hot soapy water would be enough to get rid of that. I mean, I must admit, <laughs> I tend to just wash my trays out just before I sew stuff in them, so I just do it as I need to, not necessarily do every single tray, because that really, unless you've got a lot of time on your hands, is quite a depressing task. Oh, I even put the radio on and or just listen. Listen to a podcast. <laughs> So I have, to, I have to imagine our listeners actually putting this podcast on while they're cleaning their greenhouse. And we're right with you. <laughs> Great. Well, I think that's covered everything. Thank you ever so much. Thank you, Hannah. Sadly, that's all we have time for. I hope you've enjoyed our first episode of the year. Next month, we have a special guest, Ben Raskin. He's an organic grower who works with the Soil Association. He tells Chris about the power of trees and agroforestry. Can't wait. Don't forget, there's lots of information on the Garden Organic website, www.gardenorganic.org.uk, about all of the topics we discussed today. And why not head over to the Organic Gardening Catalogue online for all your seeds and gardening needs. And whatever the weather, I hope you're feeling inspired to go out and get going in your organic plot. Our thanks to Kevin McLeod for providing the music.